0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Well, last week we wrapped up our series on union with God, communion with Christ, and um, This week, we're kind of returning back to Genesis, as it were. We were kind of coming back to our time where we're learning about... the book of Genesis. And, and I want to kind of remind you of the format of how we were approaching this book. We we went back and we started in Genesis chapter 1, uh, where we see an orientation to who God is, that, that God is creating the world in power and authority. And at the center of that world, He put mankind. And so, uh, Genesis chapter 2 is all about kind of the rules for, for what that would look like. And then, sure enough, in, in Genesis chapter 3, there's a, a a disorientation that happens. If we're oriented to God's power and his authority in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3 through 11 is really about disorientation. It's about the idea that God and sinful man uh, don't always mix together. And so then what happens in Genesis 12 through 50, we get a reorientation to the character of our God. And this is where we are and where we step back into this morning. Specifically, uh, in, the, in the life of Abraham, as God is kind of revealed himself to Abraham, we see the character of God on full display. And that's where we are here this morning. Let me ask you a question. Why did God not just give up on this whole experiment that we call planet Earth? I mean, we saw it a few months ago where where God sends this worldwide flood and he's judging the earth, but he saves this small group of people that as soon as they get off the boat, they just sin again. Why didn't God just wipe humanity off the face of the earth? Why does God continue to be gracious to us? You know, I hear these stories, especially now when everybody's afraid of everything, stories about asteroids hurtling toward the earth or whatever else it might be. And all this fear that's happening, uh, everything else, the destruction of the world. If we've gotten this far and God hasn't blown us off his planet yet, what, what is it that's stopping him? Certainly humanity's not getting any better, is it? What is it that keeps God faithful to us? You and I might experience it more on a personal level. We might think to ourselves after we've sinned in the same way, in the same type of sin, for the 3,000th time why doesn't God just give up on me? Why does God still remain faithful to me? Or maybe you're not there. Maybe you're there and they are saying, I know that God has given up on me. I know that God has, his patience was worn out long ago. How can we be sure that that's not true? See, this morning we have brought in front of us a, sinner like you and I. He's born with the same heart in his chest that you and I possess. We inherited the sin of Adam. And as Abraham comes to us in this story this morning, or whether it be the daughters of Lot as well, make faithless decisions, we see that all of us deal with this recurring faithlessness, this recurring problems. We we struggle with our own sinful humanity, don't we? See, as we dive in this morning, here's where I think God wants to take us, is that God is faithful to his promises even when we forget them. Even when you and I aren't really necessarily thinking about God's goodness and mercy and the cross or his new covenant, his promise to us, God is faithful to his promises even when we forget them. That's where we want to kind of open up, a reopen the story of Abraham this morning. You see, really what our passage does to us this morning is it shows us uh, specifically God's faithfulness amidst pregnancy. Uh, there first is two women who decide to get pregnant in a way that might not please God. And then in the second instance is a man who decides not to protect his wife from possible pregnancies elsewhere. And in the midst of that, what we're going to see is we're going to see God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham that we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, right? We talked about that. I will make a great nation of you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And I will bless all of the nations of the earth through you. That's his promise to Abraham. So here's how it's going to break up. Lot, Lot's daughters act without faith in chapter 19, verses 30 through 38, and then in chapter 20, we're going to see that Abraham acts without faith. We're seeing two different individuals uh, who act outside of faith in God, and we're going to see the differences in the responses that happen. Let's start in Genesis chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 30. Now, Lot went up to Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters For he was afraid to live in Zor, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, "'Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father.'" So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son called, uh, and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the great kind of story you wanna jump back into the book of Genesis with, don't you? This is one of those stories that just kind of leaves us feeling like we need a shower, like we need to kind of wash ourselves clean of everything that's happening here. But let's break down exactly what's going on in this passage. See, what happens first in Genesis 30 is that Lot is fleeing to the hills that he formerly avoided. If you go back into chapter 19, into verse 17, uh, you'll see the angels of the Lord speaking to Lot, And he says, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. You see, Lot is interceding to say, no, no, I can't be alone after this. Don't send me into the hills or else I will just become utterly depressed and ruined. So I'm going to go to Zor. How about Zor? Does that work for you? And sure enough, the angels are gracious and they say, yes, this works. And that's where Lot was supposed to go. But when we get to chap- chapter 19, verse 30, what we see is that Lot is not content to stay in Zor any longer. And what he's intending to do is actually to go and live in the hills, as so many of us have wanted to do, right? Right. Here he is, he's fleeing. Why? Well, we have no idea really why. When you see the things that Lot has seen, there's a certain trauma to it, isn't there? But the passage doesn't make any such comment on those things. In fact, what the passage really wants to get to is a discussion about Lot's daughters. Now, we have to remember where Lot's daughters have been. They just came out of the city of Sodom. They just came out of the most discrepit sexual environment that you could live in. And we have to think that they think a little bit off kilter, don't they? They think just a little bit wrongly because of their influence of their culture. And so we look at verses 31 through 32 and these daughters uh, plan to carry on their existence. They tell us the problem there in verse 31. Our father is old. My kids have that problem too, right? There's not a man on earth to come into us. See, what these women are thinking is it's literally the last man on earth scenario, right? That thing that we've been told so many times. I wouldn't date you if you were the last man on earth. But this is exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking that Lot is the only existing male on the planet. And so what they need to do is perpetuate their existence through pregnancy. And so they develop this plan And the plan reads to us like this in verse 31. Let us make our father drink wine and and we will lie with him. The plan is is clear because Lot wouldn't consent. uh, They would give him wine and then they would take advantage of him reminded again that this is the second time in the book of Genesis that wine has led to some abuse that's happened. If you go back to Genesis chapter 9, remember Noah has become drunk on his own wine from his vineyard and his son Han comes in and looks upon his nakedness. And we, we see that that's more than just seeing. There was probably something involved with that. And so sure enough, this tie between alcohol and abuse is already in existence. In verse 32, they, they've told us the, the, the reasoning. And they've told us the plan. And then finally, they tell us exactly why they want to do it. They say that we may preserve offspring from our father. They think they're the last ones on the earth. And so they've developed this plan and they're set to put it into action. And we've just got to stop and consider this. This assessment is, is a, really a statement of their trust in the Lord, isn't it? Like we don't act in any particular way in our life outside of the faith that we actually believe. And so these daughters of Lot, even though they've just been rescued from the destruction uh, of Sodom, even though that they've been graciously removed from the city, they're so concerned that God will not perpetuate. God will not be faithful to their race. And so they make a plan and they set it into motion we ask these questions and we say, does God require us to live in such obvious disobedience to perpetuate things? Is God not gracious to meet us in our need? No, by any account, these daughters are not acting on faith in Lot's God. Instead, they've kind of deduced this strategy based upon their limited perspective of what they see and what they know, the, the few facts that they've strung together, they've worked out this plan, that they're going to do this thing. And as we're gonna see, this has drastic consequences. See, what it goes on to tell us is that these daughters execute their plan in verses 33 through 35, and we see kind of a, a formula there in verses 33 and 35. They made Lot drink, they lay with their dad, and then the exact same phrase, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And eventually, they become pregnant now, what happens is, interestingly, in verses 37 and 38, we see exactly who the children are that are born to these two women. And if we kind of dig in, we find out that Moab becomes the father of the Moabites, and Ben Ami becomes the father of the Ammonites. And we'll kind of get into exactly what that is here in a second. But we recognize that left to our own faithful, our faithless acts, act have, excuse me, left to our own, our faithless acts have drastic consequences. Let's talk about these kids that these women have. The Moabites would become worshipers of Baal. Baal is like that New Testament God or Old Testament God that is constantly leading Israel astray. If you were to fast forward to Numbers 25, uh, it's the Moabite women that would start to introduce these uh, Baal worshiping practices to the Israelites. And specifically, it has to do with a sexual relationship. We see that in Numbers chapter 25. The men of Israel become involved with the women of Moab, and the women of Moab introduce Baal worship to the men of Israel. And it leads the heart of the Israelites astray. Well, what about the Ammonites? Well, the Ammonites worship a god called Molech. And if you know anything about the god of Molech in in the Old Testament, he was the god that required child sacrifices. You can look it up on the internet. You will see these altars to Molech where you would take your child and set them on the altar and they would be sacrificed to the god Molech. Again, this particular form of worship was a particular hindrance to the people of Israel in the future. See, both of these nations will become a thorn in the foot of the nation of Israel in the future. And here, the beginning with this ill advised plan, complete with sexual indiscretion and drunkenness, will give birth to so much heartache down the line for these Israelites. Here's the question before we cast any stones Is your faithless act or my faithless act any different? Is it any different than what these women have perpetrated? They might not involve such drastic measures, but they start with my concern for me, and they will inevitably end in in failure. You know, it's true that if, if I just start with me, and I, I do everything for me and my desire, and I, I look and I try to do what I want and what seems good in my mind, then I will kind of find that I'm never satisfied with anything. Until the world kind of curves its, its arc toward me, I will never be satisfied with what I have in my life. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, the Proverbs say, but it is the Lord's purpose That will stand. See, when we make plans that begin and end with me, we stand at odds with the God of the universe who's working all things to his purpose. If you and I are just concentrating on what we want and what we desire and how we think things should go, if we create our plans like these daughters of Lot have done, if we act faithlessly, I guarantee that we will kind of butt up heads against the God of the universe who has plans. We'll find that not everything in this world goes as we want it to, and we can't manipulate our environment in that way either. But here's what's fascinating. The baby-making endeavors of Lot's daughters aren't the only faithless acts in our passage here this morning. In fact, God's chosen inheritor, Abraham, is also going to act without faith. Yet here, God is going to preserve Abraham's wife Sarah from becoming pregnant in faithfulness to his promise. Let's turn our, our attention then to chapter 20, verses one and two. From there, journey, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb, and lived between Kedesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah his wife, "She is my sister." And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. See, once again, Abraham's traveling. Right? He, he lives in a tent, and he picks up his tent and he moves to a different area, particularly to the south, where he lands in this area called Gerar. Now. Eventually his son Isaac is going to settle in the same area and do the exact same thing that Abraham is about to do. Because what Abraham does in verse two is the same thing that Abraham did in Genesis twelve. So in Genesis twelve, he went to Egypt and he said, Sarah's my sister. And here in Genesis chapter twenty, Abraham's going to say, Sarah is my sister. And in Genesis chapter twenty six six, Isaac is going to say, Rebekah is my sister. And he's constantly doing this so that he can preserve his own flesh, either Abraham or Isaac. And so what happens is the king takes Sarah as his wife. Now remember, Sarah's like 100 years old. So it's not a sexual thing, it's probably more of a political thing. This is a way for this Abimelech, this king, to kind of extend an olive branch out to Abraham and say, let's kind of strike a pact together. But God doesn't see this as innocent, as we see in verses three through seven. Look at verse three with me. But God came to Abimelech in a dream at night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live." But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. That's a fun conversation to have in a dream, right? You are surely going to die. You are a dead man. That's exactly what God says to Abimelech. That is that the actions of Abimelech in taking Sarah as his wife are so offensive to God that they will result in certain death for Abimelech if he doesn't turn. And we might think this is drastic. In fact, Abimelech actually lays this out as drastic, but as we've read through the book of Genesis, we've seen that that God promised Adam and Eve that if they touched of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. That he told Cain that if anyone touches Cain, they would surely die. That he sent a worldwide flood and he sent death upon so many people because of their sin. We saw Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed because of their sinfulness. God has a long track record of bringing death because of sin and he's no different here in his interaction with Abimelech and so what Abimelech does is he responds and he brings up his objection to the Lord in verse 5 did he not say himself to me she is my sister and she said he is my brother in verse 5 Lord am I am I wrong in this did I do anything I haven't touched her so the information given to Abimelech was misleading. Now notice what he says there in his uh, plea with, with God. He is, uh, in the integrity of my heart, and in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. My heart has full integrity before you. My my hands are innocent. I have not touched this woman. Now, notice how God responds then in verse six. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, but does he affirm the innocence of his hands? No. Listen to what God does instead. This is fascinating to me. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God is saying, no, no, I didn't let you touch Sarah. You weren't innocent in your hands. I kept you from sin. I kept you from violating me. I kept you innocent. I know the integrity of your heart, yet it was I, my interaction to preserve my daughter, Sarah, to preserve my promise to Abraham and Sarah so that the child of promise would come through them and not through some guy named Abimelech in Gerar. I'm preserving my promise. And so the Lord responds to them in verse 6, and he tells Abimelech in no uncertain terms that he was not, or he was only innocent because God had allowed him to be innocent. And so the dream closes, Abimelech knows what he has to do, and he responds in verses 8 and going on, he says, So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have, you, why ha, or what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Notice Abimelech's questions to Abraham as he kind of investigates what's going on. First, he says, why have you done this? Derek Kidner in his commentary says that Abraham never thought about how his lie would affect those in the kingdom of Gerar. What have you done to us? What have you caused in our midst, Abraham? Abraham never considered what the fallout might be for this kingdom. Second question, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? And Kidner says, Abraham never considered that those in Gerar what they deserved. Abraham never had any thought toward them or their well-being. And then finally, the third question that Abimelech asks Abraham is this, what did you see that you did this thing? And so Abraham had never considered The facts. See, the culmination of all this is that Abimelech's statement at the end of verse 9 says this, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. Couldn't Lot have stated the same thing to his daughters? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. See, what happens is when we consider ourselves first and foremost and in front of what the Lord's will is, we automatically end up violating those around us, don't we? That our sin before God has uh, kind of horizontal consequences. That if we are just considering ourselves and acting faithlessly independent of God, we end up kind of just violating those around us. That's what Abimelech brings to the surface. Abraham responds in verses 11 through 13. Abraham said, I did it. Because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Abraham kind of lists his reasons. I want to take the second reason first. He 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 kind of deals with the facts in verses twelve and thirteen. He says, "Well, she is my sister. She's the son of my father's, whatever. Whoever knows how the family tree works, right? She is actually my sister. I didn't really try, you know, tell a lie. But we all know, as we read this story, that Abraham wasn't fully telling the truth, was he? He didn't tell a lie, but he wasn't really forthright about his relationship to Sarah. But more importantly is the first thing that that Abraham brings up. He thought there was no fear of God in Gerar. Isn't that what he says there in verse 11? I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. These people don't fear God. These are godless people, God. How can I come in here and claim a wife like Sarah for myself? These people are godless. They will kill me in a moment's notice. Yet when we look back up at verse eight, what do we find? The men were very much afraid. Isn't it funny that Abraham has surveyed the land, surveyed the situation. He's come up to this conclusion. If I tell them that Sarah's my wife, they're surely going to kill me because there is no fear of God in this place. And what does God produce? Fear of God. It's funny, as we read through this story, that when we have Abimelech and Abraham, that Abimelech is the one who shows true fear of God, isn't he? And Abraham falters. So what happens is the denouement in verses 14 through 18, and Abimelech is abundantly gracious. He blesses Abraham and he restores Sarah's honor. Look at verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Abraham's wife. See, here we're brought to this resolution, aren't we? The denouement of this story is that Abraham receives blessing even though he's the one who's disobedient. Even as Abraham has just stepped away from this promise of God, he's the one who receives sheep and oxen and male and female servants all out of Abimelech's desire to be right before the Lord. He's extending this kindness. But also in verse 16, Abimelech restores Sarah's honor. Abimelech treats Sarah with greater respect than Abraham did, didn't he? Abraham's ready to cast Sarah aside, let her become someone else's wife. Abimelech is actually the one who restores her honor. In fact, that's the phrase in verse 16. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. That that phrase could be translated, it is a covering of the eyes of all. We're covering over the the, the wrong that was done to you. Abimelech is taking that on himself and he's extending this kindness in a public way. So what happens then is that Abraham, as he's received blessing from the nations, as he's received something from someone that he didn't deserve, restores health to the household of Abimelech in verses 17 through 18. He might stop and say, okay, this is a lot of story here. There's a lot of fact going on. What are we kind of looking at as we look at these stories in Genesis 19 and 20? See, the, the long and short of this is that God is faithful to his promises. That our God is one who doesn't just forget the things that he says, he actually retains his promises and is true to the very jot and tittle, the smallest portion, the smallest iota of what he has promised to us. Even in the midst of our faithlessness, God meets us with great faithfulness. Let's just stop and just consider kind of the weight of Abraham's story thus far. God's faithfulness is not due to our perfect obedience. Let's just say that again. God's faithfulness is not due to our perfect obedience. Abraham has this long story, right? Where God's making these promises, and occasionally Abraham is acting in this faithless way. You know, we we look at passages like Romans chapter 4, and we see that, that Abraham is justified by his faith. And we think then that Abraham has this massive faith that that is always doing the right thing. But as we read the accounts in Genesis, we see a different story. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that's where God gives the promise to Abraham, this massive promise. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And I'm going to bless all of the nations of the earth through you. Well, it's... Later on in that same chapter, in chapter 12, that Abraham goes down to Egypt and lies about his wife the first time. Fast forward to Genesis 15. The scene is there where, where Abraham falls asleep by this tree, and God is going to make a covenant with, with Abraham while Abraham literally is sleeping. He Cuts these animals in half, like as if to say, if either of us break our side of this promise or this covenant, let us be like these animals split in two. Let us die the death that they also died. And, and when God comes, it causes Abraham to fall into a sleep, showing that God himself will take care of the covenant. God will be true to his promise to Abraham. And so that happens in Genesis 15. It's in Genesis 16 that Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant Hagar and has a child by her. It's in Genesis 17 that God strikes this covenant with, with Abraham. And it's here in Genesis chapter 20 that God or that Abraham's already forgotten the nature of that covenant. See, we also do things out of line with a life of faith, right? We also act in faithless ways at times. Oftentimes, we repeat the same sins over and over again. We're reminded even this morning that that Abraham did the same thing twice in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, and that his son was going to do the same thing in Genesis 26. But it's not just those things. It's his time with Hagar was faithless. And so Abraham has this life that is not consistent. He acts in extreme faith. He goes and he, he rescues Lot from Cheddar Laomer. He, he believes God in Genesis 15 when he looks up at the stars and he sees them and he, he recognizes that uh, God's saying, as many as the stars are, that's the number of descendants. They're going to be as, as many as the sands on the sea, seashore And yet he'll turn right around and do something absolutely faithless. See, we're this mixed ball of massive faith and absent faith. Just this living contradiction. I've been fascinated, Jody and I have been having some discussions recently and we'll talk about people's strategies for COVID-19. And some people have these, like, these standards. They, they won't go and do this, uh, and there's kind of this list of rules of the things they, they won't do in, try to, in order to try and keep themselves healthy. Yet, everybody has something that is contradictory in some way, right? We'll go to a restaurant, but we won't go to Walmart, or we, we will go to Walmart and we won't go to whatever else, right? We have all of these things that are just contradictory. We all are kind of in some way self-contradictory in that matter, aren't we? And that's what we do all the time, whether we realize it or not. We're inconsistent in the way we play out the issues of our faith. We're inconsistent in the way we think about things. And the truth is this morning that you and I are people in, needs, in need of grace and kindness from God. That's why this morning I want to orient us to the promise of God that he's given to us. See, Abraham wasn't the only one who received a covenant from God, is he? We also have received a covenant from God. Matthew 26, uh, Jesus says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'm gonna dig into Paul's words in Second Timothy chapter two. I believe it's on the screen here this morning for us. Second Timothy chapter two, saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. You know, it's interesting that when Paul writes this, this phrase, this, this word, he's waiting for his own execution. Paul's chained somewhere, and he's waiting to die. And doesn't that cast new light on verses 11 and 12? If we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. Paul is facing the last moments of his life is saying, I must endure, I must remain faithful so that I can live, so that I can reign with Christ. And then uh, verse 12, if we deny him, he also will deny us in the fearful last moments of his life saying, I cannot deny Christ because Christ will also deny me. But this morning, I really wanna dig into verse 13 if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let's just stop and consider this for a second because there's obviously a difference between denying Christ, between apostatizing, and living in a faithless way. Paul has in mind something very different that if if we were to deny Christ and actually uh, become apostate and turn on our faith, then we wouldn't have any promise in heaven. But what he talks about here in verse 13 is that When we're faithless, God remains faithful. You and I find ourselves in countless situations, right, where we haven't been completely faithful, where we've forgotten the promises of God, where we've abandoned God's goodness to us. And yet Paul's statement here is that he remains faithful. Well, why Why is it that God remains faithful to faithless servants? Why does God show himself true to those who are untrue to him? This is what he says in verse 13. He cannot deny himself. That is, because he has promised salvation to those who are trusting in it, he must deliver it. As surely as the God of heaven is not a liar, he will deliver salvation to those who are trusting in him. It's not a matter of you and I and our faithfulness, it's a matter of God's promise. And because God is not a liar, is not in contradiction to his will or to his word, he will bring us to completion. Isn't that the promise at the beginning of Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so when Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 26 that this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, he's making a promise to us. He is showing us, signed and dotted with the blood of His own Son, that He is faithful to us, that He is true to us, that even when we forget that promise, He does not forget that promise, and He remains true to His people. As surely as the body of Jesus is broken, as surely as the blood of Jesus was spilled, our sins are forgiven. God will bring us into His presence through His power and through His authority. It does not rely on upon us. Amen? You may at times be faithless, but our God is always faithful to his promises. See, Christian, here's the truth this morning. Your sinful history and my sinful history are not enough to nullify God's promises to us. There is no sins that we can perform that would earn our standing with God. There's nothing that we can do that can take it away from us. This morning I, I might act, I might talk about my own history here. I don't like to do this often because it can become very quickly about me. But to recount the story of God's grace in my own life, I. I think it might be worthwhile for us to to think about. I came to know Christ when I was 10. The period of of my age between ages 10 and and 17 was marked by foolishness. I pursued my desire without care for the things of God. I was just foolish. And the ages between 18 and 30 were marked by arrogance. If age... uh, 10 to 17 was marked by an uncaring for God's religious things, versus, or page, ages 18 through 30 were very familiar with the things of God, but used them manipulatively. And ages 30 through 40 have proven to expose my anxiety about various things. I'm foolishly thinking that I can control the things around me. If I were to speculate, I think that ages 40 through 50 will be marked by, by struggling with just lethargy, by struggling with just an uncaringness of, of just really being motivated to do what God has called me to do. And if I were to speculate on ages 50 to 70, I would say that I, I might be prone to resentment and bitterness and anger. But the point is that God is faithful to us over a lifetime of faithlessness. God shows Himself true to us as we give seventy years or fifty years or however long it might be, or we might not be faithful to Him, but He's faithful to us. No matter who you are, you will not faithfully execute every aspect of your Christian life. What we need is grace, mercy. See, here's the truth. Some of us are sitting here and we're wondering, when will I finally exhaust the faithfulness of God? When will I finally perform that last sin where God will just throw in the towel on me? When will I finally just wear out God's patience? And I might just submit to you that we should be asking a very different question Maybe the question we should be asking in this place is when will God ever break his promises? When will God ever turn on his word? If Abraham's a living example of someone who struggled with the same sins over and over and over again and has this long history of faithlessness, we also see on the other side of that a history of God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, don't we? As recipients of promise this morning, I want to be a people that cling to that promise, that that hold on to the truth of the gospel, that cling to it, and aren't those who are just lost in our faithless moments. And I want to pray for us now that God creates in us a thirst for that gospel. Let's go to our God and pray. Lord, we ask now that you would create in us a thirst to see your faithfulness in all things Lord, I sense that some of us are in need of grace and kindness. We are exhausted. We see our sins in such clarity that it's hard to oftentimes see your grace and your mercy. The truth is, Father, that you remain true to your word, that when you promise that Jesus' blood was covenant to us. We claim that promise. So Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.